How do we deal with our sin? Such a fundamental question to human experience. I mean, how do we deal with the consciousness of our sin? The guilty feeling of sin. If you never feel guilty for your sin, you know nothing of the grace of God. For one of the marks of God's grace is that we see our sin for what it is. And we rightly feel guilty in the presence of God for that sin. So how do we deal with our sin? Famously, Augustine in his confession is really well known as a text highlighting the wrestling of a man with the sense of guilt. And yet one man, I read some this week, one man writing about Augustine's confession says this bad conscience can easily turn to neurotic obsession. And that is so often the thing of the world regarding the conscience of sin. They presume that if you feel guilty for your sin, you must have some sort of neurotic obsession, excessive introspection, not a willingness to simply live and let live. And that was certainly how the historians viewed Luther. He is mad because of his sin. And they presumed that such an experience of guilt must indicate some sort of disorder. The same exists today. And so when people express a feeling of guilt for sin, there are various remedies sought. People seek to quieten the conscience. Some will endeavor to redefine sin. They will only look at sin as, if you like, the most outrageous expressions of human depravity. But the ordinary matters of human weakness, well, that's a different thing altogether. No need to feel guilty for simply being human. To err is human. No issue if you're simply expressing what it is to be a weak man. Others, of course, will pursue drink, drugs, immorality, to seek to numb the feelings of guilt and ignore sin. Again, the pleasure hormones that come through these things, they certainly counteract the feelings of guilt, at least for a season. That's why sin is indeed a pleasure for a season. It numbs the feeling of guilt, a consciousness of sin. Others, of course, will seek to accept their sin, but then to make good, to live a good life, and so outweigh their sin, and they will look to their supposed righteousnesses, and that will, in their own minds, outweigh the nature of their sin. And so all of these various solutions. To all of them, we say, only the gospel has the answer. Every other attempt is bound to fail. At least it will fail eternally in the sight of God. Some people may live their lives with a sense of peace of conscience, numbing their sense of their guilt, but even that will end when they stand before their maker. The gospel is the only answer to the guilt of human sin. And that answer is again before us tonight. The issue before Paul, of course, in this context, chapters 9, 10, 11, the issue before Paul is the salvation of the Jews in this gospel times when Gentiles are coming to know the Lord. Again, back in chapter 9, we have this acknowledgement that God makes known the riches of his glory on the vest of mercy, which he hath before prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
And so we, we're looking at Paul's treatment of the nature of the, the faith or the lack of faith of the Jew in times when Gentiles are coming to believe the gospel. But as he engages in this discussion, he's raised several important Christian doctrines. But if you like two come to the fore, the doctrine of sovereign unconditional election. Again, chapter 9 and verse number 12, as he looks at Jewish rejection in the comparison uh, with the issue of uh, Jacob and Esau, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That's one important doctrine. Chapter 11, verse 5, even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So understanding Jews and Gentiles, understanding salvation, you must understand the doctrine of divine unconditional election. But the other doctrine that comes to the fore is the doctrine of justification. That comes to the fore at the end of chapter 9. Up to this point, I've simply touched upon it without looking at it in any real detail. But at the end of chapter 9, we see the language about attaining to righteousness Chapter 9, verse number 30, the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness. Language that denotes a right standing before God. Now these Gentile believers, they now actually have righteousness in the sight of God. The Jews did not attain this, though they worked for it. The Jews did not attain such righteousness, Chapter 9, verse number 31, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. The Gentiles attain this by faith. The Jews do not attain it because they seek to attain it by works. And so to be justified here, to attain righteousness, is to be saved. That's Paul's burden. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. To be saved is to be justified. To be justified is to be saved. And Paul's burden is that his brethren, they are not justified. They are not saved. They have not attained this righteousness. And he prays over this burden. And as he prays over this burden, he expresses the state of the Jew and observes the tragedy of their lost opportunity. The gospel was revealed to them. Christ Jesus came unto his own and preached the gospel of the kingdom. But they were ignorant of God's righteousness and they continue on in their self-righteousness despite the opportunity offered to them in the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ has secured justification for all who believe in him. The availability of the gospel is there before the Jew, but they spurn their opportunity. Verse 4 is really essentially a summary of the gospel. The law condemns us, but Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, paying the law's penalty and fulfilling the law's precepts. The fact that verse 4 is a gospel summary is, of course, confirmed by the theme text of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. The gospel is all about Christ as the revelation of the righteousness of God. 
And if we miss out any of those component parts, we have not properly understood or taught the gospel to others. The gospel is the gospel of God's provision of perfect righteousness. So tonight, I want to walk through Paul's explanation of verse number 4. Verse 4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, for Moses describeth. And so he's continuing his thoughts. The word for there indicates continuity of argumentation. He's going to explain to us, well, what does it mean that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness? Tell us more, Paul. Explain this to us. And so you'll see tonight, we have six points, a six-point sermon. Well, that gives us about five minutes per point. And I'm going to try to do that tonight, uh, not evenly, not as bad this morning. First point was like 30 minutes, the last two or five minutes, and not, not like that tonight. Try to evenly understand these six points, because what I want to try to do tonight, I want to do several things. I want to try to help us all to, again, be clear in our understanding of the gospel. This really is the very fundamentals of what the gospel is. I don't preach that many sermons that really are just simply, this is what the gospel is. I want to try to help you with that. But I also want to equip you that if you are going about to speak to others about Christ, this is what you must tell them. That what you have before us today, these six points, are really a very helpful summary of the gospel that you can take with you. Memorize, keep in mind, and use these things if you have the opportunity to tell people about the Savior. That's how fundamental this is tonight. And so let's begin, first of all, with the necessity of the gospel of God's righteousness. Again, verse number five begins with this word for, for Moses. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to the believer, but not for the worker of the law. Now, if you're speaking to someone, perhaps in your family or in your neighborhood, and you're describing the gospel, how do you explain to them their need? What language do you use to present to them their need of the gospel? Because you're offering them something, aren't you? Now, we are, we are no common salesperson. We're not trying to sell them a, a, a refrigerator or some other amenity. But yet at the same point, we are offering them something. And the offer must come in such a way that they understand their need of what's being offered. And so, have you explained to them what they need? Are you saying to them, you need a better life? Therefore, here's the gospel. Are you coming to them and saying that you need God as your friend? Here's the gospel. Now, does the Christian message offer a better life and God as your almighty friend? Well, yes, it does. But these things are not the fundamental needs of the gospel. The need of the gospel is in this one word, righteousness. If you're explaining a sinner's need, you must explain it to them in terms of righteousness. You see, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, verse number 5. It, of course, is a quotation of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, where it says there, "...ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall live in them, I am the Lord." If a man do, he shall live. That is the righteousness which is according to the law. And so you can quite clearly say to your neighbor that if you're going to be righteous in God's sight, if you're going to be accepted by God, a God of perfect righteousness, 
then you must have perfectly and perpetually kept the law of God. That is your standard. The standard of God's righteousness is his own law, and to be righteous in God's sight requires perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to the law. All day, every day, for all your days. And not just from this day on, but for every day prior to this day. A perfect obedience to the law of God. That is the righteousness which comes by keeping the law. Now, of course, that is absolutely impossible. Hence the necessity of the gospel. As Paul tells the Galatians, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Therefore, chapter 9, verse 31 is true, that Israel hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. The impossibility of perfect perpetual obedience renders the Jew not righteous, but guilty in the sight of God. Now, of course, even if it were possible to live all of your life in perfect obedience to the law of God, you've still got to deal with the guilt of Adam. That's chapter 5. But at this point, Paul is making the point that the Jews could not achieve righteousness by the works of the law. Therefore, if, the deeds, if by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in the sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the gospel of God's righteousness is necessary. So oftentimes, modern thinking regarding conviction of sin is to use the law in such a way as to prove man's sinfulness. And that is helpful. But we can also simply use a law to prove man's lack of righteousness. We say, oh, you're this and you're that. You're a liar and you're adulterer and all those things. And yet that's, that's fine. It's helpful. But there are those, and they believe they're not guilty of those outrageous sins. Use this method. You have not perfectly, perpetually kept the law of God. You fall short of God's glory. The necessity of God's righteousness. Secondly, note the availability of the gospel of God's righteousness. The availability of the gospel of God's righteousness. Look at verses 6 through 8 here. Verse 6 begins, But the righteousness which is of the faith speaketh on this wise. Now, now what you're seeing there in that, that language, again, it's, just a, it's a figure of speech, it's a term of phrase. It's saying the scriptures speak regarding righteousness of faith on this wise. Paul here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, speaking to righteousness. You see, please turn across now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Not yet, before you get there, sorry, too quick. Verse number 6 begins, The righteousness which is of faith speaketh in this wise. And that runs all the way down through to the end of verse number 8. That is the word of faith which we preach. So immediately we're going to be encouraged to see a parallel between Deuteronomy chapter 30 and the language of Paul here in Romans chapter 10. So now I turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because the question is, why does Paul quote Deuteronomy chapter 30? 
And this question has actually troubled, again, those who write and uh, the authorities on the, the book of Romans. Because Paul, he takes the language of Deuteronomy, clearly refers to it, but does not quote it verbatim, either in the Greek or the Hebrew. He takes the sense and the concepts of Deuteronomy chapter 30. But more than that, he refers to Deuteronomy chapter 30 as the language of the righteousness of faith in a passage that is dealing with the necessity of obedience. Deuteronomy 30 reads an awful lot like the biggest chapter 18. Do this and you shall live. So in what sense has Paul taken this and made it a word for the righteousness that comes by faith? Well, look at the language. Verse number 11 of Deuteronomy 30 says this. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. Paul's point here is not established, or the Lord's point here through Moses is not establishing legal righteousness. It's, it's not a passage that's telling the people, this is how you must live to know God's favor. Rather, these are those who have been redeemed. They're in a covenant relationship. And in redemption, this is how they must live. Instructions regarding the conduct of those who are in God's grace. But the point of this section, verse 11 uh, through to verse number 14, is to emphasize the availability of the law. How do they know what they are to do? How do they know how to live? Well, because the commandment is not far from you. It's not in heaven, that you should say, bring it down. It's not in the sea, beneath the sea, that you should say, bring it up. But verse 14, the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Moses is emphasizing the availability of the law of God. And from that availability, he then mentions their responsibility. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record or witness this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. It's the availability of the law of God to the people that then enforces their responsibility. Availability proving responsibility. Keeping that in mind, uh, by the way, put a marker into Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll come back there very soon. But keeping Deuteronomy 30 in mind, Turn back again now to Romans chapter 10. Because you'll see what he does here. The righteousness, verse 6, which is of faith, speaketh in this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Now what's the issue? Back in Deuteronomy, the law is available. It's not far off, it's not away from them. The law is available to them that they may live by that law. And so, they don't need to ascend into heaven. They don't need to descend into the deep. But the word is nigh thee, verse number 8, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. But what I want you to notice, please, is this. Verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. All three verses use two words that point us in the direction of understanding this passage. Verse 6. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Verse number 7, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. Verse number 8, the word is nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, 
the threefold use of the that is, is the explanation of this passage. In other words, what Paul is doing here is, he is taking the general principle of Deuteronomy chapter 30, namely that the law is near to the people, and he's taking that general principle and saying, the gospel is near. The gospel is available. You do not need to live in unbelief. And the language he uses, verse 6 and 7, is likely a rebuke for unbelief. Christ has already come down. And Christ has already risen from the dead, verse number 7. The gospel is not afar off. It is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It is the word of faith which we preach. Difficult three verses, I accept that. But the point is really very simple. The gospel is available. The gospel is near. It is not afar off. It is not beyond our understanding or comprehension. It's not hidden from us. It's revealed to us by God. It's available to us. It's available to both Jew and Gentile. One man says this. What has Paul done in these words? He has taken the general sense of Moses' words and applied them to Jesus, showing that just as the Old Testament law was not hidden or distant or unreachable to the people of God, such that they could not get to it, the same is true for Christ whenever the saving message of the gospel is preached. Christ is not beyond the sinner. The gospel is available to lost souls even tonight. And we can bring that gospel to the needy. Let me just stop here. If the point of Moses was that availability proved responsibility, so that is true for all of you here tonight. The availability of Christ renders you responsible for what you've done with Christ Jesus. You can't say you weren't told. The availability of the gospel. Thirdly, please note the suitability of the gospel. The suitability of the gospel of God's righteousness. There are those And when they comment on the use of Deuteronomy chapter 30, they stop at the principle of availability. I think there's more to it than that. There are very clear parallels between Deuteronomy chapter 30 and the language of Leviticus chapter 18. Do this and live. Turn back now, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Why would Paul choose this passage? Is he just living in the scriptures, having the general sense of this passage in mind, and then using that? Well, that that may be true, but there must be more to it in my mind. And so Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 19 says this, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Or verse number 16. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live. That sounds so much like Leviticus chapter 18. Do this and live. But how can that also then be referring to the message of righteousness by faith? Very, very simply. The covenant that demanded obedience for life is demanding righteousness. And Christ obeys 
and hence lives and secures life for all his seed. Christ fulfills the covenant of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So that verse 19 says, Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. Christ died but lived, and all those who trusted him live in him and with him forever and forever. And so therefore, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is chosen, I believe, by Paul to prove and found the truth of verse number 4 of Romans chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness because Christ is the one who has perfectly obeyed the law unto righteousness. And in so doing, he has secured life. Why can Paul substitute Christ for law? Deuteronomy chapter 30, law. Romans 10, Christ. And Paul makes an easy transition between the one and the other because Christ is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And so the transition is easy. The law is near to God's people. This is the way of righteousness. Christ is near to God's people because he's kept this way of righteousness. Therefore, there is a righteousness available to you. And it comes in the suitability of Christ Jesus. And so the gospel of God's righteousness is suitable. When you're explaining the gospel to sinners, you must explain how the gospel addresses their needs. And the need that they have to be in God's presence is righteousness, not just forgiveness. Forgiveness comes through the shedding of Christ's precious blood. Righteousness comes through the perfect obedience of Christ on our behalf. You know this? I remind you again, the absolute necessity of Christ's active obedience. He kept the law perfectly. He kept the law personally, perpetually, and perfectly. And he did it for us. Fourthly, the simplicity of the gospel of God's righteousness. Because what happens, he describes in verse number 8, the word of faith which we preach. And then note a connection again. That, he's going to explain what this word of faith is. What is the word of faith? It is the fact that righteousness is secured by faith and by faith alone. It is simple. It is not complex. You'd be forgiven for saying, well, the last 10 minutes have been fairly complex. But let's establish the fact that there's a perfect righteousness available. Receiving that righteousness does not take work. It is not complex. It is not difficult. It is simply believing the gospel. It does not need all the complex circumstances of many religions. Do this, 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 this. It simply requires faith on the part of those who call upon the Lord. This word of faith is defined. Now, as we look at verse 9 and 10, please note with me that verse number 10 is not describing some sort of process. Verse 10 says this, for the heart man believe in the righteousness. And some say, well, that's, that's step one. And then with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, step two. So first of all, you get righteousness. And then at some future point, you, you get salvation through confession. I don't think you think that. Uh, but let me show you again, that's not the case. Righteousness and salvation are seen here to be equivalents. Chapter nine refers to righteousness 
chapter 10, verse 1 refers to salvation. Chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you believe, or if you confess, sorry, and believe, thou shalt be saved. One outcome, verse number 9. Verse number 10, two outcomes, righteousness and salvation. But the point is that this is all one and the same thing. These are equivalent terms. To have righteousness is to be saved. To be saved is to have salvation. All of these things are together. And so to believe and to confess, it's not so much that they are two separate things, but rather they are two ways to see and understand true faith. But we will look at them separately. But they are one and the same thing. There is, first of all, there is conviction about truth. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or verse number 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. There is internal conviction regarding truth. Two words, Lord Jesus. Two words in the original with unbelievably profound significance. They were to say, Jesus is curios. Jesus is Lord. The importance of this is seen over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you see that to say such a thing in the heart requires the work of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12 and the verse number 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. It's not describing the mere statement of words. Anybody can say, Jesus is the Lord. This is a matter of the confession of the heart, the confession of the mouth, coming from a heart of conviction regarding truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is so much in that statement. It denotes a belief regarding the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who comes as the Son of God. That's the language again used by John. John writes these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, John 20 and this passage in Romans 10, they're not arguing with each other. Paul is not minimizing the confession required. It's all assumed in these words. The Lord Jesus, he is the incarnate Son of God. His name is Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. He is the Christ of God. He is the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, he obeyed unto the cross, whereby God hath highly exalted him and given him a name of every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. He is the Lord. He is the resurrected Lord. That's there, isn't it? Thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. All of this is assumed the history of Christ's resurrection. The acceptance by the Father of the death of Christ. All of this is it's all comprehended in these words. Jesus is Lord. Is that your conviction tonight? Conviction regarding his identity. He is the Lord. His history. He lived and died and rose again. His authority. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. All of this assumed in the statement Jesus is Lord. Now we can overcomplicate salvation. We're guilty of that. We want to see certain degrees of conviction and strength of faith 
And we minimize the weak faith of some who, who really do believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, but their, their faith is so very weak, and we, we doubt and we question their salvation. We can overcomplicate salvation. It is believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we all sort of times are guilty of oversimplifying salvation by telling people to believe that which they do not know. Faith requires a knowledge of the identity, the history, the authority of Christ Jesus. We must be able to say truly, Jesus Christ is Lord and know what that means. Don't make salvation easy by minimizing the importance of conviction regarding truth. I know our desire is to see people confessing faith in Christ, but they must understand all of these things, including the fact that he is Lord of their lives. Jesus Christ is Lord. Conviction regarding truth. And also then confession of that truth. Not confession as a work that saves, but an expression of faith in a new heart. The language here is similar to the language of baptism. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark chapter 16. Baptism as a public confession, a demonstration that Jesus Christ is Lord, important for this New Testament church, points to the fact that the come to faith in Christ is life-changing. This confession is public, that those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord will not keep that belief secret, but rather will gladly state that publicly. Not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord, even to the point of the cost of their lives. You see, such a confession, it bears evidence of the certainty of their conviction. No fear in confessing this truth. It's true. I don't care what you say. It's true. And therefore, I'll confess it publicly because I believe it with all my soul. But also, it points to our delight in Christ. We will gladly proclaim the truth that we believe. We've been so consumed by the truth that he's Lord of our lives that we gladly make such public profession. Not mere assent to propositions. The demons believe these things and tremble. The demons have perfect knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know it. They know it well. But this conviction that we hold, confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart, it leads to a calling upon the Lord. Verse number 12 brings in another term here. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. What you're seeing here is that faith in Christ Jesus is not a mere statement of propositional truth. It is a recognition of sin and calling upon the Lord for mercy. Hence, repentance is assumed here also. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel and confess the gospel and call upon the Lord. Now, I would acknowledge here that there's no model prayer offered here. There's no prayer to pray verbatim and say, if you pray this, you'll be saved. There's no such thing like that. No need to worry about, did you do it the right way? Did you say the right words? It is rather a conviction of your sin, a confession of the Savior, and calling upon God to have mercy upon your soul. It really is very, very simple. You're a sinner. He's the only Savior. And you must call upon Him to be saved. The simplicity of the gospel of righteousness. 
Fifthly and briefly, the certainty of the gospel of righteousness. Again, note again verse number 11. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Again, please note the connection here. Verse number 10. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But can I be sure? If I call upon the Lord, if I believe the gospel and confess the gospel, and you say I'll be saved, can I be sure of that? Well, Paul says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. It's a repetition of the quotation of Isaiah 28 that was used back in verse number 33 of chapter 9. Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. We mentioned at that point that the quotation that Paul takes here is from the Greek rendering, and it has the idea in its original of not making haste. And the idea is that when judgment comes, we shall not flee in disappointment. We need not make haste in God's presence because God's righteousness is suitable to your needs. Thus we stand before God, not with God marking our iniquity, but with God marking our righteousness, which is not ours, but which is Christ's. And such a standing is ours immediately before any works, before any efforts on our part, we stand accepted in Christ immediately we come to believe the gospel. Even when our faith is so very, very weak, even when we barely are holding on to gospel knowledge and gospel truth, yet we stand accepted not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's. And so, dear child of God, your assurance in verse number 11 is grounded upon the certainty of Christ's work not upon how you prayed, not even upon how you lived, but simply upon how Christ lived and died and rose on your behalf. The certainty of the gospel of God's righteousness. And finally, note the universality of the gospel of God's righteousness. That's, of course, verse number 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. We'll come back to this next week. Because it sets a scene for what follows in the preaching of the gospel. It is the generosity of God towards sinners. Of all backgrounds. Ethnic origin, male, female, young, old. God is generous towards all in his mercy. The word rich here of course speaks of the resources of God's grace. He is rich in resources. The gospel is indeed described as us coming to know the riches of God's mercy. The riches, verse number 23 of chapter 9, of his glory. We're going to know these riches. God is rich in displaying these things to us in the gospel. But not only has he resources, he's willing to bestow bestow them. There are many, many rich people who will not give a dime to anybody. God is infinite in his riches and gladly showers those riches upon all who call upon him for mercy. He is not stingy or miserly with his mercy. He is rich in showing his mercy. You can tell your friends that. Is there mercy with the Lord? 
Oh, there's so much mercy with the Lord that he'll give you all his mercy and not exhaust one drop of his mercy. That all the millions that are drunk of the river of God's grace, they have not exhausted the supplies of God's mercy. There is still mercy with the Lord tonight. That's the blessedness of the truth that leads to the statement of verse number 13. Whosoever, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you call upon the Lord, you shall indeed be saved. That statement is so, so simple. And yet, of course, it's built upon such profound doctrinal truth. The verses lead up to this point, and they encourage all of us tonight to ask the question, have we called upon the Lord? Have we confessed Christ Jesus? Have we come to conviction of the truth? And if we have, praise God we're saved. Praise God we're saved. Let's bow together, please, in prayer tonight. Lord God and Father, we again come before thee tonight, acknowledging afresh our need of your grace and your help. We pray you'd help us, O Lord, to delight in these things, that as we are reminded of the very fundamentals of the gospel, so may we remind ourselves in our hearts tonight of what it is to be a child of God, uh, to be the recipients of God's mercy. Thank you, dear Father, for your riches toward us, that you've showered us with your mercy. How good is the God we adore. Help us, O God, tonight. Bless our journeys home. Keep us safe on the roads. We pray, O God, that you'd bring us back together again soon to praise and glorify our Savior until Christ returns. And we'll praise thee forevermore as those who are saved by eternal, unfailing grace. We thank you again, O Lord, for the gospel. Watch over us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.